From Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. Opening statements in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin began on Monday. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell began his argument in front of a global live stream audience just after 9 o'clock. We are bringing this case, this prosecution against Mr. Chauvin, for the excessive force that applied onto the body of Mr. George Floyd. You will learn what happened in that nine minutes and 29 seconds, the most important numbers you were here in this trial are nine to nine. What happened in those nine minutes and 29 seconds when Mr. Derek Chauvin was applying this excessive force to the body of Mr. George Floyd? During his opening statement, Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, disputed prosecution's claim that Chauvin was to blame for George Floyd's death. Instead, he said the outcome could have been the result of a combination of drug intoxication, heart disease, and the adrenaline rushing through Floyd's body as he struggled with police. He also told the jury that they'd have to consider evidence about whether the use of force in this case was within the bounds of techniques Minneapolis police officers were trained to use. To answer these questions, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, the evidence will show that the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension investigated the Minneapolis Police Department's training and policies. You will learn about things such as the authorized use of force, proportionality of force, excited delirium, defensive tactics including prone handcuffing, neck restraints, maximal restraint technique, the swarm technique. You will learn about rapidly evolving situations and the Minneapolis Police Department's decision-making model. Nelson also said the defense planned to introduce evidence showing that the viral video of Floyd's death did not show a range of other factors officers were dealing with outside of the Cup Foods grocery store. You've seen it this morning, but you will also see it from the perspective of the police officers. As the crowd grew in size, seemingly so too did their anger. And remember, there's there's more to the scene than just the office, what the officers see in front of them. There are people behind them. There are people across the street. There are cars stopping, people yelling. There, are a, there is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be a threat. They're called names. You heard them this morning. A fucking bum. They're screaming at him causing the officers to divert their attention from the care of Mr. Floyd to the threat that was growing in front of them. With me here to discuss some of the opening statements and witnesses that have been called so far is Echo Yanka, a professor of criminal law at Cardozo School of Law in New York City. Professor, thanks for joining me again. So with the opening statements, both sides have a narrative to draw here, but it seemed that the prosecution really chose to focus on the time factor, the 9 minutes and 29 seconds that Chauvin pinned Floyd to the pavement. Was that an effective strategy, in your opinion? First of all, by making it about 10 minutes, the prosecution denudes the argument that this is a police officer who's making a split-second decision. As the prosecution says, nine minutes and 29 seconds is hundreds of seconds, and there's not a split second amongst them. The prosecution also did a really great job of anticipating some of the flaws in in their case. 
they they come right out and say, look, we know that George Floyd did drugs. We know that he struggled with opioid addiction. We know that he had health problems. But none of those things are the things that killed him. You can believe your eyes. You know what killed him. It's that somebody was crushing his neck for almost 10 minutes. Um, and the last thing that was noteworthy is the prosecution. You know, they have a fine line to, to walk. The case is important to all of us because of its meaning in the intersection of race, violence, and policing. But that's not what this prosecutor wants to tackle. This prosecutor says, look, this is about this police officer. Indeed, this police officer betraying his job. It's not about the wider case. Lastly, I should say they used the technology really well. Um, They showed that heartbreaking video. One of the quieter moments I thought that was really powerful in the prosecution was they showed a picture of Derek Chauvin in various minutes of George Floyd's death, right? So here's a picture of Derek Chauvin at three minutes. Here's a picture of Derek Chauvin at six minutes. Here's a picture of Derek Chauvin at nine minutes. And Derek Chauvin looks unmoved and unmovable during all of those. And that just hammered home a sort of callousness. So if the prosecution's job is to draw attention to the nine minutes and 29 seconds, the defense's job is obviously to obfuscate and take attention away from that, yes? You know, the defense knows they only need one person to have reasonable doubt. They need one holdout to win the case. And so they start where all defenses start. They start with the very real proposition that everybody is entitled to a defense and that the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt what happened. That's a classic move. It's not terribly moving, but it's a classic and important proposition. And then the defense zooms out and says, look, it's going to be more than about the nine minutes and 29 seconds. It's going to be about, you know, George Floyd walking in. It's going to be about the store owner calling the police. It's going to be about George Floyd taking Percocet or maybe it was a speedball. It's going to be about George Floyd falling asleep in the car, 15 minutes of talking to him beforehand. So as the prosecution wants us to focus in, the defense wants us to zoom out. They want the jury to think, not surprisingly, about a sort of rolling set of circumstances that might have all led to this, where it's not, you know, it's not callousness, but rather, you know, introduce the kind of idea, well, look, maybe something did go wrong here. Maybe it was ominous. Maybe they did have to make difficult decisions. And then, of course, the defense did what they have to do. They introduced and tried immediately to cast doubt on what killed George Floyd. So here's a man with a heart problem. Here's a man who's been doing drugs. Uh, They point to the fact that the coroner did not see any of the, as they say, telltale signs of asphyxiation, that the state got a second coroner's report. So they're, they're surely trying to make the jury realize, even if Derek Chauvin did something wrong, uh, because obviously nobody will escape that video. The state still has to prove this is what killed George Floyd. And a drug addict with a history of health issues, maybe something else did it. Right. As you point out, cause of death is likely to be central to the defense's case here. Uh, but I was wondering, was there anything else in Eric Nelson's opening statements that surprised you? The part I thought was just flatly a mistake was when the defense hinted at, you know, there was a growing crowd. There was, you know, it was growing ominous. It was growing tense. They were being insulted. And that tension and that crowd 
may have distracted the officers from their care of George Floyd. I mean, knowing the video we've all seen, knowing the video that's going to be hammered home to the jury, to try to spin this as um, the police were distracted by a crowd from the care of George Floyd was really borderline uh, insulting. I thought it was, um, I thought it was ham-handed. It was a mistake, and it can just be read as dismissive and cavalier. When a crowd is pleading for you to get off somebody's neck and pleading for a man's life, to to intimate that they are distracting you from the, your care of that person strikes me as just tone deaf. The prosecution actually addressed this issue of the crowd as some kind of unruly mob by referring the jury back to the original video, saying that if this was the case, we would see it in the video. But instead, what we see is Chauvin sitting on top of George Floyd for about 10 minutes. But the defense, kind of doubling down on this tack, also chose to bring up other factors, such as the fact that this was considered to be a dangerous, high-crime neighborhood where officers had to keep their guard up. You know, this is the one thing that has really changed since we've had video. You know, police have long had, uh, let's say, wide latitude in how to behave by describing a place as a high-crime area, as dangerous. And in a jury's mind, that has long sort of meant, oh, you're, you're in this dark, dangerous place with danger around every corner. And I think, frankly, for decades, that's had a grip on the jury's mind. How would you feel if you were walking through a war zone? What video has helped to do is to show that the police aren't the sole interpreters of what's happened and where they are. The police don't get to describe every neighborhood they patrol whenever they want is a high crime area. It may be a poor area. Indeed, it might have more crime than other places. I do think it is much more difficult in a world where we get to see for ourselves what broad daylight in a poor neighborhood looks like. You know, one of the interesting things when you teach the subject is nobody ever interrogates what counts as a high crime area. Frankly, the police have simply been able to say something's a high crime area. And by doing so, frankly, have just huge and broad discretion in how they behave. Echo Yanka teaches criminal law and procedure at the Cardozo School of Law. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you. In addition to some of the bystanders at the scene, the prosecution also called several witnesses whose faces were not shown on the video feed because they were minors at the time of Floyd's death. This included prosecutor Jerry Blackwell's questioning of Darnella Frazier, who was 17 at the time and was the one who shot the initial viral video of Floyd's death. So tell the jury what you observed, what you heard uh, when you stopped to look at what was happening there at the scene. I heard George Floyd saying, <clears throat> I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. He, he cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. He was terrified. He was suffering. This was a cry for help. Frazier was walking with her nine-year-old cousin to the Cup Foods grocery store that day to buy snacks, but instead she said she came away being traumatized and heartbroken. 
Mr. Nelson, ask you a few questions about your video going viral and how that's changed your life. Remember that at the end? Yes. Uh, would you tell the ladies and gentlemen how you're viewing, experiencing what happened to George Floyd has affected your life? When I look at George Floyd, I look at I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have black I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends. And I I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life, but it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. Advocates of police reform have pointed out for years that the Supreme Court affords officers with significant legal protections, including, at times, the power to engage in deadly violence. Well, I think that the, the opening statements, I think, tell such a tale about policing and, and violence and race. I'm Sheila Betty. I'm a clinical law professor at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law and I'm director of the Community Justice and Civil Rights Clinic. So Sheila, was there anything about those opening statements that struck you as particularly telling or noteworthy? The opening statements, both from the prosecution as well as the defense, um, starting with the prosecution, one of the things that I was just so struck by is the fact that the prosecution really made clear that this is not an indictment of policing. This is not about the institution. This is about the individual. Kind of making very clear that in that courtroom, what was on trial is essentially the one bad apple, the one bad police officer who used an act of violence. Now, I understand why the prosecutor took that position. I understand that that's the way he had to frame the case for the jury. But I think it was just so telling in terms of the limits of a criminal trial to really get at the truth of what happens in these instances of of racialized police violence. And then the defense, I mean, you know, just sort of trotted out all of the racial tropes, you know, talking about Mr. Floyd's size, talking about the fact that he was addicted to substances, really making it clear that his death resulted from drugs um, and not from the violence uh, that the police officers imposed on him. You know, the, the violence of Chauvin, of course, but as well as the officers who were, who were the spectators. The other thing that was really interesting to me about the defense's opening is they made a number of references to this really debunked science of police training. It's called force science. And it is a brand of police training that they use in Minneapolis. It's been highly critiqued. It's not based on any kind of real science. It's the kind of training that essentially allows a police officers to come up with post hoc justifications for the use of violence. And some of the terms that are terms of art used in for science were used in the defense's opening. And so I thought that was a real marker of where the defense is going. 
What were some of those terms of art about force science that stood out for you? So they talked about things like excited delirium. They talked about the use of defensive tactics. So this idea of excited delirium, this is a concept that force science teaches, which is the idea that when an individual is is under a lot of stress, um, when an individual is scared, all of a sudden they have the ability to become sort of superhuman in their strength and have the ability to to resist in ways that might not be immediately obvious, you know, just based on things like size and that kind of thing. Um, and so, so it is actually one of the things that one of the officers at the scene said that they were worried about excited delirium. Um, and then during the defense's opening, you know, they, he said to the jury, you're going to hear more about this. You're going to hear more about things like excited uh, delirium. Um, and also you're going to hear th- about things like human factors, which is the idea that, that sort of, again, when you're in these stressful situations, you have to make split-second decisions and officers are often, are often perceiving a threat that may not be there because of these human factors. And that, again, is one of the things, one of the brand's hallmarks of this force science training. Despite the picture that you're painting about this kind of overarching orthodoxy surrounding use of force, one of the things that really jumped out at me in this case was how many law enforcement professionals the prosecution's witness list includes. I mean, everyone from the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department to this woman, Genevieve Hansen, an off-duty firefighter who testified on Wednesday about how she pled with officers at the scene to allow her to render aid to George Floyd. When you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. Were you frustrated? Yes. One of the things that's clear is that the the prosecution is saying, hey, you know, he wasn't trained. Chauvin wasn't trained to behave in this way. Chauvin was trained to use the principle of proportionality to stop the use of force as soon as it became apparent that the force was no longer necessary and that that that's not what he did. Um, And so it's clear that they're going to put on witnesses that will talk about that concept of proportionality and and that will help make that really come alive uh, for the jurors. But then it also seems like that the defense is going to be prepared to put on witnesses saying, hey, police officers are trained to use force, to use violence. Violence is a part and parcel of policing. And the only person who can really fully evaluate a threat in the moment is a police officer who's there and who has the benefit of taking in all of the information that's available. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court was very clear that an officer's actions are not going to be judged with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. And, and so they're both going to really be focusing in on these issues of training, but from a slightly different perspective to try to get the jury to, to see the evidence through their lens. In the 11 months since George Floyd's death, there's been a tremendous amount of attention on these issues of race and policing. Do you think that's something that juries are more attuned to than they were in years past? And what will you be watching for as this trial moves forward? Well, I'm really interested to see what evidence they're going to be putting on um, about the specific training that they received. I I think that to the extent they are going to try to put on this forced science training, I hope the prosecution will come back strong and show how debunked it is to show the ways in which it has been used 
to try to justify these types of, of, of police violence. I also wonder to what extent the defense could overplay its hand in trying to criminalize, demonize, racialize George Floyd um, in trying to perceive him uh, or try to ask the jury to perceive him as a threat, particularly given how unspeakable the video is and just how devastating it is to see him on the ground calling out for his mother, talking about how much he knows he's going to die. You know, the, the, that video is just so powerful. And then to hear the defense saying, well, you know, George Floyd was essentially at fault for this. I wonder to what extent that could actually backfire for them. Sheila Betty is a clinical law professor at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. Professor Betty, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And that is where we will leave the case for now. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn and Jessica Coombs. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. If you like getting this kind of context and background on the legal issues being discussed in this trial or other legal topics as well, I'd be so grateful if you could not only subscribe to the podcast, but also rate and review it on whatever podcast platform you use. It really helps new listeners discover the show. Thanks again, and I'll be back at you next week with more interviews and analysis as this trial unfolds. 